Good morning, Valley Bible Church. It's so good to see you. Thank you for joining us here on our online platform. If you're uh, viewing us for the first time, just want to say thank you for joining us. We're jumping into our series, The Gospel of John. We're still in John chapter 1. And last week, we asked a really important question. Uh, we were kind of just, just realizing and coming to grips with that we're all in kind of a reality that we don't feel really comfortable with. And there's kind of a nagging question inside of us of, of who will bring the world that ought to be, the world that should be. And, and even more than that, we went a little deeper than that. We said, well, who, who, who can change us? Who will uh, make us who we should be, make us who we ought to be? And so we tried to grapple with that who question. We, we're all aware that the world is not as it should be. And I think if we're honest, we're aware that, that we are not all that we can be. And so we need somebody to, to make us better, to make the world better. And so we asked that question, well, where can we look? Who could we look to? And we saw that the Bible answered that question just with a very clear answer, that Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the only one who can make our moral dreams come true. He's the only one that can make us who we should be and make us who we ought to be. He can handle our sin and he can transform us and make us better people. And in that sense, make the world a better place for us to live. Well, that's a great hope, but how do we kind of get that started? We, we, we talked about in order to see each other fairly, to see each other rightly, we need to see Jesus clearly. Until we see him as we should, we won't see each other as we should. And so we need a movement. We need, we need, we need change. We need real and lasting change. Well, well, how do we get that started? And that's really why I want to dive into this morning is, is what's the first step? How do we get started? How do we cause a movement? A movement that makes us see Jesus as we should. A movement that makes us see each other as we should. A movement of love. A movement of justice. Well, how do we start? Well, movements are a great thing. And there's something that we get really excited about. And when that initial kind of momentum of a movement is starting to be gained, it, it, we just get excited about it. We, we kind of get enthralled with the celebrities or the leaders of that movement, and it, it inspires us, and we even aspire to be leaders of movement. You see, but sometimes this desire for a movement, for dramatic change across the landscape of humanity, sometimes that desire can be overwhelming, almost defeating. We want so much, and we want to be so much, and we want such a large impact, and we want such, such dynamic leadership that sometimes that desire can be counterproductive. We kind of aim too high, and we set such a high goal that, that we almost get depressed when we think about how do we start this? What's the first step? It's almost like, like taking on a large weight loss goal, so large that in the first week you just kind of throw in the towel. What we need is an easy step, a first step, a, a step that's, that's right there within our grasp, a step that we all can take. So where do we start a movement? How do we start a movement? What's the first step? Well, I think our passage this morning is actually going to address that question. So this is what I want to do. Let's go to the Gospel of John. We're going to pick up right where we left off, and here's what I think we're going to see is the main idea of this passage is the big idea for this morning, and it's the answer to that question, well, where do we start? What's the first step? If we want a movement and cause a movement in our nation and on our planet of people seeing Jesus correctly and therefore seeing each other correctly, a, a movement of justice, a movement of love, 
Now, what's our first step? Where do we start? And I think what we're going to see in our passage is this, the main idea being this, and the big idea of our message this morning is this, conversations create movements. Conversations create movements. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at our passage in, in John chapter 1. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of walk through the passage together, just kind of getting some of the details. And then what I want to show you is that a movement starts at the end of our passage, a, a dynamic movement that changes the landscape of the first century world that even ripples all the way out to our 21st century world. But then I want to take a step back and ask ourselves, that: well, how did that movement start? How did it start? What was the first step? And what I think you're going to see is the first step is really within our reach. It's not that big, but it can be profound. It can create eternal impact if we take this step. So let's, let's journey together, and we're going to see, again, that conversation creates movement. Let's just walk through the passage together. This is in John chapter 1. I'm going to start with verse 35, picking up where we were last week. It says this, the next day, John, this being John the Baptist, we're kind of familiar with this character. It says the next day, so this is just right after the passage we just read. John's going to kind of repeat himself after he sees Jesus again this new day. It says the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, if you remember from last week, this is exactly what John said before. Now, he added a little bit more. Last week, he said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then he says even more about Jesus, that he's the Son of God. He says that he is the giver of the Spirit, the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So, what is John saying here? John, again, is reminding his followers Jesus is the hero we're looking for. Jesus is the leader we're looking for. Jesus is the one who can handle our past, take away our sin and our regret and our shame. He can take away our sin. But he can also transform us. That's what it means to give the Spirit, is he can transform our hearts, really solve the problem of humanity, which is our heart. Jesus Christ can do that. And this persuades John's followers to move away from him. Look at what happens. The reaction after John makes this large declaration, behold the Lamb of God. This is what happens in verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Well, what's going on here? John the Baptist is so persuasive in his declaration of who Jesus Christ is, his followers leave him. Now you think this would be kind of depressing if you're John and you're a leader of a movement, his own little movement. You don't want to lose followers. You want to to gain followers. But John has no problem kind of stepping back and allowing Jesus to take the stage. He knows this is the reason that he came. This is the reason that God sent him was to set up Jesus. And he does this very well. And these two disciples see Jesus and they say, Jesus, and they call him rabbi. Now, what does that mean? 
Well, John, the gospel writer, translates that for us and says it means teacher. He explains it for us. So what do these followers want? They don't want to just ask Jesus a, a question. Hey, hey, we heard about you. Can we grab you for a moment? Can we get an autograph? We just need some, some, some little bit of time there with you. No. They, they go to him and they say, hey, we kind of want to change our allegiance. We don't want John the Baptist to be our rabbi. We want you to be our rabbi. We want you to be our teacher. We see this, another clue to this, that they want more than just uh, for Jesus to answer a question, more than just small talk. They ask Jesus, Jesus, where are you staying? We want to know because our conversation is going to take longer than just walking on the road. We want to sit and eat with you, and we have questions for you, and we want you to teach us. And their conversation goes on for a good amount of time. It says that they have to stay where they are because it's already late in the day, and traveling back at night wouldn't be safe in the first century world. So they decide to stay there. So they have this kind of whole day with Jesus. And one of the disciples is so convinced by what he hears about Jesus, what he hears from Jesus, that he decides something needs to change, something needs to happen. He not only needs to become a follower of Jesus, but he has to bring also his brother. Look at the next verse, verse 40. And one of the two heard, who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So Andrew is just captivated by who Jesus is. Whatever this conversation was with Jesus, just struck him with, with kind of such just profound meaning. It just changed kind of his trajectory on his life. He said, man, I, I've got to follow Jesus, and I've got to get my brother in on this as well. And we're introduced to his brother's name. His brother's name is Simon. And he tells Simon, Simon, I've found the Messiah, the Christ. This was the kind of Old Testament hero that they had been waiting for for a long time. A hero that would come and, and bring God's people back to himself. He's kind of echoing a little bit of what John the Baptist already said, that the hero who would take away our sin, who would baptize with the Spirit, who by his leadership this great movement of God would happen and the, the people would be released from their sin and reunited back to God. This is what Andrew is telling his brother. This is what I found. Okay, now watch how the end of this account takes what I like to call a very bizarre turn. Okay, just try, try to place yourself in the shoes of Andrew. You've been following John the Baptist and he's been teaching you some very profound things. He's been speaking about his role as being identified with the character in the Old Testament, that, that he is the one who's fulfilling the idea of preparing the way for the Lord, that he is the forerunner, he is the, the setup guy. And so you've been listening to John the Baptist. And now John the Baptist is telling you, hey, the guy I've been, been telling you about and speaking about, he's now here. There he is. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So, so you follow him. You, you, you go where your teacher wants you to go and you follow Jesus and then you, you meet with him. You kind of dine with Jesus. You have a meal with him and everything he says just strikes you in such a profound way. And you think to yourself, man, maybe this guy is more than just a teacher. Maybe at this point, Andrew is thinking of all the Old Testament prophecies that he learned when he was a kid, all the Torah reading that he would do, all the all prophets and, and, and all the, the scriptures that he would memorize as a kid are now coming to a sense of fulfillment. 
You could tell he's probably giddy and a little excited. So he decides to make an introduction. He goes and he gets Peter and then he brings Peter to Jesus. And, and, and I'm guessing he just senses a profound moment that's about to happen. I mean, he had a profound interaction with Jesus. So I'm sure he's expecting Peter to have the same interaction. And look at what happened. Something very, very bizarre. Look at verse 42. It says, he brought him to Jesus. Now, Andrew is bringing Peter. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. What happened here? I mean, if we read this kind of slow and let ourselves be put into the passage, this is a really bizarre move here by Jesus. I mean, he's just been introduced to somebody. I'm sure Andrew said, hey, by the way, I'm Andrew. We talked before. Uh, I I, want to follow you. I want you to be my teacher, but I want my brother to come along. And here's my brother. His name is Simon. And Jesus just looks at Simon and says, nope, you're Peter. You're Cephas. And and these names, uh, Peter is Greek and Cephas is Aramaic. These names mean stone or rock. So imagine in the 21st century world, you introduce somebody to a new friend that you just met and and you say, hey, by the way, this is my friend Steve and he looks at him and says, no, I'm going to call you Rocky. What a weird interaction, right? I I remember when I was a kid and and reading this passage just reminded me of this. Uh, There was this girl in my elementary school who used to bully me and before you laugh at that, yes, there was a girl in elementary school who bullied me. I mean, look at me. I wasn't very intimidating, right? And one of the, her little tactics was kind of like this mind game. And I remember when I first met her, I, we're on the playground and, and, you know, I'm doing, you know, monkey bars or something like that. And she asked me what my name is. And I thought, ooh, it's exciting. I'm going to make a new friend. And I said, well, yeah, my name is Paul. Oh, no, I'm going to call you Chuck. And then she just goes about playing with her friends. And I thought, wait a second, that, that's not my name. My name is my name's Paul. My name is not Chuck. And it, and it was almost like playing this like mental game with me, right? It was odd. I was kind of taken aback a little bit. And then I felt, wait, this is strange. And she kept kind of this pattern up, kind of just renaming everybody. It was a way to kind of have leverage over people, it felt like. Well, I mean, that's kind of how obscure this seems for Jesus here. This behavior seems a little bit odd. How do you meet a guy and immediately the first thing you do is you change his name? What, what on earth is Jesus doing here? Well, Jesus is doing something incredibly significant. It's actually not bizarre. Maybe to the 21st century hearer or reader, it is a little bizarre. Not something that we would find to be common practice. But Jesus is doing something very significant, very profound. Jesus is renaming Simon because he's declaring to Simon who he would make him. You see, this is a pattern in the Old Testament that God does this. God renames people. When God is kind of changing and shaping their future, when he's giving them kind of a a new assignment in his unfolding plan, he'll give them a new name. He does this with Abraham. He does this with Sarah. He does this with Israel or Jacob. He renames them. and, and, And those moments are kind of watershed moments in their life. There are moments where God starts shaping their future more and more. This is what Jesus is doing. 
Jesus is speaking into Simon's life and he's saying, you are rock. That is who you are. You are Peter. You are Cephas. And this name, it stuck. It wasn't just a nickname. But this name would follow Peter really for the rest of his life. We see this just in the first century world. Uh, Paul, one of the uh, writers of the New Testament who wrote a majority of the books in our New Testament, every time he talks about Simon, he doesn't use his given name, Simon. He only uses his nickname. He only uses Cephas. He only uses Peter. That's all he uses. Even Luke, the one who would write the book of Acts, which is kind of the, the Acts of the Apostles, it was a book that described the movement of the first century church and described a lot of leaders. Even Luke himself would not use his given name, but would use his nickname. Even Peter himself, Peter who would write two of the books in the Bible, would use his nickname and not his given name. So this name really stuck. What Jesus is doing here is a really profound moment. Now, what is Jesus trying to do? What kind of assignment is he giving to Peter? Here's what he's doing. He's telling Peter, Peter, I'm going to make a movement out of you. You are going to be a dynamic leader. You're going to be a rock. You're going to be strong. And Peter, I'm going to build on you. You're going to be a, a foundational element to the movement that I am starting. Let me show you this. We, we don't really get the meaning of this name or how significant it is until later in the gospel. We see this in the gospel of Matthew and Matthew chapter 16. Look at how Jesus speaks meaning into the name he's already given Peter at his first encounter with him. This is what Jesus says in his explanation. Verse 18 of Matthew chapter 16. It says, I tell you, Peter, on this rock. Now, we can't miss this here, and it's kind of lost for us as English readers. But what he's saying essentially would be read, especially if they were uh, 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 Aramaic speakers, which is the language that Jesus spoke right here, right? Or the New Testament is written in Greek, and then it's translated for us here in English. But it's kind of lost at us because Peter to us is a name. But in the Greek world, Peter wasn't really a very common name in the first century world. And, and, and Cephas, the Aramaic form of Peter, really meant rock. It meant stone. So if, you're, if Jesus was speaking it, we wouldn't catch the nuance of difference here between Peter and rock. It, it really kind of be said like this. I tell you rock on this rock. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's making this kind of play on words. He's saying this is your name, but your name has meaning. You are a rock. And look at the meaning of this. And I will build my church. I will build my church on this rock. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you, again, he's addressing Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Do you see this? Jesus is saying, I'm starting a movement. I'm building something and Peter, I'm going to use you. You're going to be a foundational element to this. You are going to be the rock that I build on. And then I'm going to give you, and then he kind of switches the analogy here uh, from kind of building a structure to now these gates. He says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom and you're going to unlock it. Then it says it's, there's this binding and loosing. And, and the imagery there is, Peter, I'm going to build on you and you're going to open the kingdom to people. And Peter, you're going to shut kingdom from people. Now this sounds like a lot of authority. 
And Jesus is making dynamic statements here about Peter. But we don't want to think that Jesus is thinking that Peter is the only leader. Really, just two chapters away from where we were in Matthew 16, we see in Matthew 18 that Jesus gives the same type of authority. It's the same language used, but he gives it to the church. Look at this in Matthew chapter 18, verse 18. He's speaking about dealing with sin in the church. And what happens is the person continues in sin, and now they're brought before the church, and the church exercises an authority over this person who's in unrepentant sin, and they kind of shut off fellowship from that person. It's what we call church discipline. Now look at the language used in this action for the church. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now again, those words may sound a little odd to us, binding and loosing, but it's the same imagery used for Peter. The idea that you will open the kingdom of God to people and you will shut the kingdom of God for people. This is significant authority. It's given to the church, it's given to Peter. Now we can't read it like this. We can't read that, that Peter is kind of this cosmic uh, judge and he decides who gets salvation and who does not. That's, that's not a good way to read this passage. When we kind of zoom out and take the entirety of the New Testament, we see what Jesus is talking about is, Peter, I'm going to give you a message, a message about my death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I'm the one who sends the Spirit. I'm the one who transforms humanity. That's who I am. And Peter, when you declare this message, you are opening up the kingdom of God to people. And Peter, when you declare this message and people reject the message that you declare, that in a sense you are shutting the kingdom of God from people. So the authority is in the message of Peter, but he is going to be a dynamic leader who gives that message. And this is exactly what we see, that Peter is a dynamic leader who creates a, a first century movement, a movement that we still feel. We see this kind of played out through the Gospels. That if you're familiar with reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know this. That, that, that of the disciples, Peter takes a lion's share, really, of the material. That, that even when the Gospel writers will list out the disciples, Peter is first. Almost always first. Peter is the only one who had enough faith to actually get out of a fishing boat and walk on water towards Jesus. Peter is in, in, in part of the inner circle with James and John with Jesus. Kind of Jesus' closest followers above, uh, above the 12 were these kind of band of three, this inner circle. And they, they saw things that the others did not. They saw Jesus raise uh, Jairus' daughter. They, they saw Jesus transfigured, a, a moment where kind of the humanity of Jesus was kind of peeled away and the divinity of Jesus kind of came out and just shone forth to them. Peter was there to see that. Jesus trusted Peter when they're about to experience the Passover as the disciples. Uh, uh, Peter and John are the ones who Jesus goes to and says, I want you to set this up. Peter is often the one who asks questions about Jesus. When Jesus tells a parable, it's, it's Peter the one who says, uh, Jesus, will you explain this? Peter is seen as kind of the spokesman of the disciples even outside leaders see this. When, when, the, when the kind of temple clerks are looking for the disciples to pay the temple tax, they go to Peter and ask him about it. 
even the angels, very interesting comment, when the angels are at the empty tomb and the disciples don't know about it, those that are at the tomb, the disciples say this, or so the angels say this, they say, would you go tell the disciples and Peter? As if Peter was not a part of the group of disciples, they're distinguishing him. Even at the resurrection, when the tomb is empty and the disciples hear the news, John runs towards the tomb and he pauses right before the entrance of the tomb, but not Peter. He runs straight in. It doesn't take much uh, reading of the material of the New Testament to know that Peter is a dynamic personality, a dynamic leader, a spokesman for the disciples in the inner circle of Jesus, trusted by Jesus. Peter was a dynamic leader and he created a dynamic movement. I mean, we could just look, just if you have your Bible, just look at the book of Acts, because really the first half of the book of Acts is all about the movement of Peter. Look in Acts chapter 1, again, Peter, this dynamic leader who causes this great movement. In Acts chapter 1, he's the one who comes with the, up the, with the, uh, the idea that they need to replace Judas, that Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, there needs to be somebody who can be a part of the 12. Well, that was Peter's idea. When the Holy Spirit falls on the church at the day of Pentecost and a sermon needs to be delivered to the, all the people gathered at this feast, who gives the sermon? Peter gives the sermon. In Acts chapter 4, in Acts chapter 5, when the church is being persecuted by the religious leaders, the, the Sanhedrin, the kind of religious authorities of the day, the ones who actually pressured the Romans to kill Jesus, when they start arresting people and persecuting the first century church, it's Peter who defends the church. Beyond that, in Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira, kind of as the church is growing and becoming a movement and people are starting to give charitable gifts or tithes and offerings, as we would call them, right? So they start to give Ananias and Sapphira, lie about their gift. They, they lie to God. Peter says they lie to the Holy Spirit. And he pronounces judgment upon them and they die in a moment. Peter kind of makes the same kind of judgment in Acts chapter 8 when he's dealing with a man named Simon who's trying to buy the Holy Spirit. And Peter, again, makes a judgment call. He speaks judgment upon this man. Just those last two kind of incidents or events, Ananias and Sapphira and, and, and Simon, this magician, shows you that Peter has the authority to kind of open up the kingdom and shut the kingdom. He pronounces judgment upon these people. In Acts chapter 9, Peter uh, does these wonderful miracles. A, a man who is a paralytic, who can't walk, he, he gives him the ability to walk again. Then right after that, he actually raises somebody from the dead. I mean, Peter is a dynamic leader. And one of his most dynamic moments is in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, God gives him this great vision a vision that God is communicating to Peter. Peter, this idea of clean and unclean that you're so used to in the Old Testament, this, I, this idea of people being outside of Israel, outside of the people of God, these kind of boundary markers that, that, that set off the people of God from those that aren't the people of God. I'm taking all of those away. I'm removing this idea of clean and unclean. I'm removing the barrier between Jew and Gentile. See, in the Old Testament, in order to be a part of the people of God, you had to be a part of the nation of Israel. But God was doing a new movement in the New Testament. 
And now God will have his people amongst all nations. So we have Peter who actually speaks into racial tension in the first century world. Peter does something incredibly controversial. He gets this vision, this declaration from God. Hey, I want you to go. And he goes into a Gentile house, an uncircumcised Gentile. It's a non-Jewish person, which was taboo, to say the least, for a first century Jew. But Peter boldly does this. And this creates a movement where now non-Jewish people can become followers of Jesus Christ without becoming Jewish, without joining the nation of Israel. Now the nations will become followers of Jesus. It it is the, the great pivot in the story of God that God is now moving in a different way, not creating a nation, but creating a people in all nations. And Peter is the one who starts that movement. Peter is the one who speaks courageously into racial tension. Dynamic. Man, doesn't it make you think? It'd be great to have a leader like that right now. Maybe you think, man, it'd be, it'd be great to be that leader right now. A dynamic leader. A performer of miracles. One who can speak to racial tension. Peter, even beyond what we have in the scriptures or what we have in the book of Acts, even shows himself to be an even more dynamic influence. Not that he have power in, in kind of the first century church. We see later that Peter becomes a missionary. Paul, the apostle in the book of uh, Corinthians, would speak of, uh, of Peter even having a following in Corinth. So he went beyond Jerusalem. He went to Corinth, which, which was about 800 miles away. And then we see later in church history, uh, Clement of Alexandria and Origen speak of Peter even being in the city of Rome, being martyred there. Beyond even that, Peter is the one who God will use to write two letters in the New Testament. So he actually gets to write scripture, which millions of people have read. Man, what a dynamic leader. What a movement that he's called. The millions of people whose lives Peter has changed. See, but here's what I think happens at times. We get enamored by these stories of of Peter, this man whose resume is just really unparalleled in a spiritual way. And that's what we desire. That's what we want to be, and that's what we want to see. And I don't think that's a bad thing. But as I feel that we are kind of on a spiritual precipice as a nation, as we're waiting and and almost kind of holding our breath to see direction. And I think those of you who go to Valley Bible Church, you're looking for spiritual direction. You're not just looking for a political leader. You're not just looking for change to come from legislation or from a ballot box or from whoever you vote for. But you're looking for a a dynamic spiritual movement and an awakening, if you will, For God's spirit to fall on our nation, for people to see Christ for who he really is and therefore see others for who they are. To be reunited to God and then to view others as image bearers of God. And so we're all kind of holding our breath, waiting for this kind of person, this kind of moment. And I don't think that's a bad thing. But I think what happens is we kind of uh, just make this kind of grand kind of view of the movement 
And it doesn't seem as bite-sized for us. It doesn't seem like we can actually start it. What's the first step? How do we do this? How do we really cause this type of movement? Well, go back to John chapter 1. Because we cannot forget, before there was Peter, there was Andrew. In fact, without Andrew, there is no Peter. Peter doesn't meet Jesus. Peter isn't renamed by Jesus. Peter isn't given this promise that he will be a rock. That he will be one that Jesus builds the church on. That he will have the authority to open up the kingdom and to shut the kingdom. That, that, that he will raise the dead. That he will heal people. That he will preach at Pentecost. That he will preach to, to the Samaritans. That he will preach to, to, to the Gentiles. That he will change the dynamic of the first century world. That he'll become a missionary. That his influence will reach all the way to the capital city of Rome. That he'll die as a martyr. That he'll write the scriptures. In order for all of that to happen... There's one simple man who has one simple conversation. Again, that big idea, conversations create movement. Conversations create movements. And I think what we need right now is to think more like Andrew than like Peter. To really see that the first step in front of us is actually not that profound of a step. It's not that far beyond our reach. Look at Peter, or sorry, Andrew. As he goes to his brother, go back to verse 41 of John chapter 1. It says, He first found his own brother, or Simon, and said to him, right after his encounter with Jesus, he thinks to himself, I got to tell somebody. I got to have a conversation. So he goes up to his brother it says, we found the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the, the, the hero that we've all been looking for, the hero that we've all been waiting for, that we've been yearning for, that we've had promises about for hundreds of years, this one who would bring God's people back to him. Peter, I, I found that guy. Now, Andrew's resume does not in any way stack up to Peter's. Not even close. In fact, the only time Andrew is ever mentioned in the scriptures, it's when he's bringing somebody to Jesus. There's at one point where, where he's there as a part of the disciples that he is mentioned and they're asking questions of Jesus. But that, that's not a really big kind of scene there. There's only two real big scenes and they're not very big. In John chapter 6, at the feeding of the 5,000, Andrew is there. And what does Andrew do? Andrew simply tells Jesus, by the way, there's a boy out there who has five loaves and two fishes. That's it. That's all we get about Andrew. So Andrew brings kind of resources to Jesus that allow Jesus to feed 5,000 people. We also see in John chapter 12, there's some Greeks who want to ask Jesus some questions. And so these, these Greeks, they go to Philip. And then Philip goes to Andrew, and then Andrew takes these gr group of Greek men and brings them to Jesus. That's it. Maybe, maybe two verses between those two passages. Every time Andrew is mentioned, he's doing one thing. He's just bringing people to Jesus. We don't see him performing miracles, raising the dead, 
preaching dynamic sermons, speaking courageously into racial tension, speaking about the unfolding plan of God and salvation. Now, I'm sure Andrew had a lot of good things that he did, but, but history is not written with stories of Andrew. But I think our history can change if we start acting like Andrew. I want to do a little thought experiment here for a moment. I just want us to think like Andrew. And, and, and maybe kind of accept that idea that conversations create movement. That dynamic, profound change, significant change starts with very simple conversations like Andrew had. So let's do this. Let's just do what I like to call some Andrew-like thinking. What if I told you this? What if I told you that the average American Christian can change the life of 8,192 people? Okay? What if I told you that the average American Christian can significantly change the life? Meaning, watching somebody hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then be equipped to share that gospel themselves. That's what I mean by life change. Become a follower of Jesus Christ. What if I told you that, that the average American Christian could see that kind of life change in 8,192 people? Who would you think that person would be like? We'd probably think, well, that's going to be that's going to be like a Peter. That's going to be a dynamic leader. No. No, in fact, it's just an average Andrew. Let me do some math for you, okay? And I'm going to do my best to keep my math correct. I cheated a little bit, and I brought a little thing that had the numbers on it for me, okay? So don't get too impressed if I just kind of rattle them off. They're right up here helping me out. But look at this. Okay, let's just think if we did this, because the average Christian in America becomes a Christian at the age of 13, okay, 13. The average lifespan in America is 78, which leaves from conversion to death about 65 years, okay, so 65 years. And I'm going to call that 13 laps, okay? What I mean by a lap is, is a five years, okay? So, so we have five-year segments. There's 13 of those. In 65 years. If, if the average Christian just made this one simple goal, and it's not a big goal, it's not a Peter-sized goal, it's really an Andrew-sized goal. If they made the one simple goal, if I just want to see one person's life change in five years. In five years. I mean, think about it. We get college degrees in four years. In five years. If we made the goal... The average Christian made the goal that I just want to share my faith with somebody, just one person, see them accept that faith as their own, and then I'm going to show them how to share that faith with somebody else. If we did that once, just once, every five years, what would that look like? Okay, well, after five years, there would now be you and the other person. Okay, then after uh, the second lap or 10 years, there would now be four people. Okay, so far not impressive, right? 10 years Four lives changed, okay? But watch the power of multiplication. You see, because each time you're sharing your faith, you're showing that person how to share their faith. 
So these four people then become eight people, and we're only on lap three. That's 15 years. Okay, now the math is going to get even bigger than that, okay? So we're, we, we, this was lap one, this was lap two, this is lap three. So now lap four goes from eight to 16. Lap five goes from uh, 16 to 32. Lap six goes 32 to 64. Lap seven goes to 128. Lap eight goes to 256. Lap nine goes to 512. Lap 10 goes to 1,000. 24, lap 11 goes to 2,148, lap 12 goes to 4,096, and lap 13, 65 years, is 8,192 people. And that was just a very simple Andrew-like goal. I just want to see one life change every five years. Now, let's just... Let's dream a little bit here. What if Valley Bible Church, everybody who calls this place home, everybody who's watching right now, what if we made an Andrew-like goal? Not, not a Peter-like goal, just an Andrew-like goal. To, just to have a conversation with somebody about Jesus, see them start following Jesus and show them how to share their relationship with Jesus, with somebody else. To make life change and teach people how to make life change. What if everybody who calls Valley Bible Church home, what if they made that goal? What would our impact look like over 65 years? We would see eight, over eight million lives changed. Eight million. Now imagine this, let's dream even bigger. All right, what if every Christian in America, every Christian in America, if they made that simple step, that, that just very simple goal of one life change every five years, what would that do in 65 years, in, in 13 laps? kind of average lifespan of a Christian experience in America. Eight billion people. Eight billion lives changed. By some estimates, in 65 years, that would be the entire population on the planet. Think about that. I, I know in myself, if I'm honest, and I want to swing for the fences. Right? I, I, I read this book and I think of the dynamic leadership of Peter. And I think, man, I want that to be me. Oh, man, I want to hold on to that kind of leadership, that kind of power. That, that kind of charisma, that kind of persuasion, that kind of ability, that kind of leadership. That's what I want. And I think there's many of us that, that, that we admit if we were honest, we would admit to that same kind of thing. We crave this immediate, dynamic, kind of world-shaping movement to happen right now. But maybe what we need is just Andrew-like thinking. Just Andrew-type living. One life change over five years. If every Christian acted like Andrew 
we wouldn't need the dynamic leadership of somebody like Peter. We would see the change just, in, just from all of us. This is what I want you to do. I want you this week to take some time between you and God. Maybe it means putting away the social media, right? Because let's just be honest, that just makes you more worried or more upset or more angry. <laughs> just maybe set the phone aside, take some time, and pray what I like to call an Andrew-like prayer. Just pray something like this. Pray, God, Father, I want you to give me one name. Father, just give me one name, just one person. Just set that person on my heart. Father, tattoo that person's name on my heart. Let me be restless every day thinking about that one person. That one person whose life I want to see changed in the next five years. That one person who I want to be on this stage. On this stage, seeing them baptized. Even baptizing them myself. Imagine that moment. Maybe in your mind you already have that person. That name already came to you. Imagine yourself. Imagine yourself standing right next to them. Them standing in the water. Them professing Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Committing their life to follow Him for the rest of their life. And then you get to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Just, just feel, if you can, in your mind's eye, the water as you plunge them underneath, representing the death of uh, to their sin and raising them out of that water to be a symbol of their resurrection life in Jesus Christ and then watching them walk away to their friends and their family members with, with, with cheers and, and, and a towel wrapped around them and they're, they're dripping, right, wet in their white robes that we give them. Imagine seeing that life change. Ask God to do this this week. Father, imprint on my heart one name. Just one. And I don't think you have to look far. Andrew thought first of his brother. Maybe they're right there. Maybe they share your last name. And I bet many of you, you got that name already. And if I asked you, is it worth five years of your prayers, five years of conversation, five years of patience, Maybe five years of doing some reading about the concerns that they have. Five years of just sitting with them in their times of pain, their times of sorrow. Five years of you being that reliable friend and family member. Five years of you investing yourself into that person to show them the love of Christ. Is that five years worth their life being changed? I think you would say absolutely yes. Imagine Valley Bible Church. If we were all Andrews, then we would see a movement, a movement of life change that would change the spiritual landscape of our nation and planet. That's the kind of movement that I want. And that's the kind of movement that you want. More importantly, I think that's the kind of movement that our Heavenly Father wants.
Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, I thank you for the great gift that you gave us in Peter. Christ, you changed his story. And man, you made him a dynamic leader. And we are so thankful for his leadership in the first century church. We're so thankful for his leadership in the scriptures that we get to read and has been leading your church for hundreds of years. What a dynamic movement. And Father, that movement started with a conversation. It started with Andrew. And Father, I, I pray that as we desire, as we ache for change, for a movement of justice, a movement of love, a movement of charity, a movement of peace, as we crave that, Father, we know that only in Jesus Christ can our hearts be changed, our sins be forgiven. And Father, that movement of seeing Jesus starts with a conversation. So Father, I pray this week, Father, I pray that you'd imprint on the very bones of who we are, the very center of who we are, that you would tattoo on our hearts one name, one person in our life who doesn't yet know you, who doesn't call you Father, who doesn't know your hope, who doesn't know the forgiveness of sins, who doesn't know the gift of eternal life. Oh, Father, I pray that you'd impress on our hearts that one person. And Father, I pray that you'd give us the stamina, the patience, kindness, to love that person over these next five years, to see them start following you. Oh, Father, what kind of church would Valley Bible Church be if we all were like Andrew? Oh, Father, I crave, I crave that level of impact. Would you see fit to grant it to us? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next Sunday.